stepping back and stroking to Bogdanovich, thinking about a three. There it is. Yes! See it again. No double team help in the feed. Takes it right to the rack. We're back. It is the feed to Embiid. Austin Krell here with you on Thursday. Thursday before Thanksgiving, of course. Uh, you're now the first 15-ish games into the season. Wanted to bring on uh, a good pal of mine also on the Sixers beat. We have Noah Levick of NBC Sports Philadelphia. Noah, how are you? I'm doing well. It's uh, It's an honor to be back and uh, I'm very prepared for a lot of deep diviness, so uh, thank you for having me. Of course. This is, the, I think, the third time, maybe the fourth. I, I don't remember how many times it's been now, but it's, uh, it's a collective. It's a good conversation, so I thought I'd bring back one of the uh, foremost experts on this pesky basketball team that we cover. Um, so, Noah, first Embiid's big night. Joel Embiid, of course scored 59 uh, points the other night, Sunday, against the Utah Jazz. 59 points, 11 rebounds, 8 assists, 7 blocks, uh, 5 turnovers. So you sit, I believe, right in front of me. Um, we, we have relatively the same vision of what's happening on the court, um, but yet maybe – a slightly bit interpretation. So I'm curious, as you reflect back a couple days later, what do you remember most? What do you remember thinking in the moments the game was transpiring, moments afterward? What do you, if you had to reflect on that night, what would you say? I guess the little thing that has stuck out to me more in the days after is I was there in person as well uh, when Allen Iverson scored 60 points. And the fact that that is 17 years ago makes me feel rather old, but I do have vivid memories of that night. And I think obviously there's a dramatic contrast where that was all about offense for Allen Iverson, whereas Joel Embiid was just freaking brilliant in the fourth quarter of this game defensively. And the Sixers needed him to be that good. The supporting cast gave him very little support. Just looking at some of the numbers from this game, there are three for 18 from three-point range besides Joel Embiid, and he assisted on all three of those makes. Yeah. And their number two scorer is Tyrese Maxey, who shoots eight for 24 from the field. So it's just hard for me to conjure a way in which one could have a more all-around dominant, impressive game. And I, I did think the perspective from Doc Rivers was telling that he essentially agreed with what I just said. And we're talking about a guy who played against Kim Olajuwon, played alongside David Robinson, uh, Patrick Ewing, etc. And yeah, Joel Embiid's night was better than any, you know, of – the performances those guys turned in, just purely in terms of production. Obviously, 
uh, in high stakes games. Hakeem put up some unreal stat lines and Joel Embiid will hope to replicate that. But this night, it is still, I think, a little difficult to fully wrap your head around just how great he was in so many areas. And also the reality that all of that greatness was absolutely necessary for the Sixers to improve to seven and seven. So a bunch of thoughts, obviously, but I think for me, that's the gist of it. Um, you know, as, as we try to soak it all in and uh, think about what we, what we got to watch. Yeah. Um, I think my first thought was like, I was expecting him at some point in that fourth quarter to kind of, just finally not have the legs under him. And that's when you would, you would think you would ideally someone else would step up to help kind of share the load. Uh, the fact that he scored 26 of the team's 27 points in the fourth quarter, clearly it didn't happen. Um, I thought the most impressive thing of all was, I guess he scores 42 against Atlanta, of course, comes back, plays, I think the first 12 minutes of the game on Sunday, then plays 11 of the 12 minutes in the fourth quarter. Um, as the quarter went on, he, his touch kind of dialed in even further. Uh, there was no rim on his shots. It was all straight through, uh, his touch was just magnificent, um, in that game. And I thought it was, you know, for, for all the things that Joel does, it was kind of like you're, you're watching him make these, uh, fading mid range jumpers. And it kind of reminds you a little bit of Kobe, the way that it's, you know, pump fake, do this, get to the elbow, boom. Um, and, you know, there's multiple guys on him and he's still just doing it, willing his team to victory. And it was on both ends of the court. I mean, really, it was as magnificent of a performance as I've ever seen, of course. Um, it'll probably go down as one of the two to three most magnificent performances I ever cover in my lifetime. It maybe even finished the best. It might, might have already peaked from there. Um, I think the, the thing that stands out is he shot 12 of 15 from, you know, jumpers that are on all shots that were not at the rim. that were two point shots. So between the rim and the three point line, 12 of 15, you kind of thought it was better than that. Like it felt like he shot better than that. Like you want, you, if I had to pulse that number without looking it up, I would have said 14 of 15 or you know, whatever. Um, but it was just a, a magnificent performance and he didn't excuse himself on the off on the defensive side of the court. He, you know, pulls down five blocks, just incredible. As the fourth quarter went on, he got stronger and it was, you know, I, I think multiple of us on press row were kind of giggling and unsure of what to make of what we were witnessing. Yeah. And it's not, that far from what you feel he is capable of a typical night, at least speaking for myself, like there have been so many times he scored 40 points and it's just, yeah, that feels about right. He's taking comfortable shots and he's against overmatched defenses that aren't equipped to deal with this combination of size, skill and increasing basketball savviness. But of course this elevated to that next level and the willpower was undoubtedly a huge factor. I mean, heading into this game, and not for the first nor the last time, there were valid questions about, is he going to play? It's the second night of a back-to-back. The night before, he said the left ankle was pretty sore, and you saw it was taped up. 
He said the right shoulder has been bugging him when he lifts it, when he blocks shots, which he did seven times in this game. But then he plays and it gives us something just absolutely brilliant. And yeah, the, the rotations for Doc Rivers were interesting. And he had a bunch of tricky decisions in part because James Harden is out and the backup center play wasn't good. So you felt the Sixers were just struggling to tread water when Embiid was on the bench and they fell behind in this game. I think it was by 14 points in the second quarter because the decision to play Embiid that entire opening period and then go all bench didn't look too good. You know, that, that lineup just was borderline abysmal and the Sixers fell into a significant hole because of it. But then obviously the decision-making in the second half uh, went really well for the Sixers. I think Embiid played the first five and a half-ish minutes of the third. And then the idea was just give him as much time as we can in that fourth period, save a timeout so that we can buy him a minute of rest that is sandwiched with, uh, you know, some additional break time via the, um, you know, me calling a timeout, Doc Rivers. And yeah, uh, it just felt like the Sixers were walking a tightrope with anything that did not involve Joel Embiid being on the court. Uh, which I guess is an illustration of just how great he was. And also that, of course, the team has some concerns uh, related to their play without him that were magnified in this game and more extreme than usual, but they do indeed exist and uh, continue to be an important storyline for the Sixers. Absolutely. Um, We talk about the bench, and I think a lot has been made of the bench, and of course they were you know, putrid. Uh, and they've, you know, even the supporting cast that was not the bench, the regulars, they were also quite frankly, not good enough. Um, and, you know, I think part of that is everyone makes a big deal of the fact that, Oh, they really had a great off season. They added this and that. And I guess the the connotation there is like, okay, they'll never have, there'll there'll be any never be any lulls in the bench production ever again but i think when you when you when your offseason includes or is mainly focused on adding guys whose offensive skill sets are reliant upon somebody else being available that can cause a chain reaction when that person is not available so i think with the bench struggling and don't get me wrong i'm not saying that they weren't struggling before harden went out but i think you know, Harden's absence has really brought to light. And this is something that we'll talk about later, but the fact that they really only have one true point guard and he is that point guard. And so when he goes out, chain reaction is you have a bunch of bench pieces who aren't playing up to what you need out of them. And so, you know, maybe that variable Im- improves once Harden is reinserted into the equation. Maybe it stays the same. I think all in all, like when you, Put it in, put the offseason in terms of dollars. They spent about 15, 16 million dollars. You know, that alone gets you one, you know, B to a, you know, B level free agent. Um, so, I mean, it isn't like they went out and completely overhauled their roster. They got three role players who are meant to fill in specific, or four role players, I should say, who are meant, who are meant to fill in specific aspects of their team but largely rely offensively on somebody else making their lives easier and spoon feeding them offensive plays um 
do you do you agree with that or do you not agree with that? I I, I think that's that's mostly uh, where I would stand as well. I, I do think with the bench, especially at, at these times, it doesn't make sense to fixate on the scoring because a lot of why these guys are here it doesn't relate to offensive numbers. Uh, it relates to some of those toughness related intangibles and the defense and the ability to just complement stars and sort of slide into uh, supporting roles. So I think these decisions now for Doc Rivers are just so difficult because, you know, even, even honestly, in, in, him talking to us, you can tell he's toggling back and forth with how he wants to approach this. I think it was a couple of games back, pregame, he said, yeah, you know, I, I really want to have either two ball handlers and Embiid on the court or three ball handlers on the court. And then I think he's abandoned that, at least as of Sunday, in favor of just, okay, Joel Embiid with our four best other healthy players is the way to go. And we just try to survive in those other minutes. I think both are stances that are reasonable enough, but there's a low margin of error. And there are instances in which either choice might not be very good. If you're playing a strong opponent and the production from your non-stars just isn't sufficient. So I think overall, yeah, the bench play outside of De'Anthony Melton has probably been a bit below what the Sixers would have hoped to begin the year. Uh, I think, of course, with Daniel House, his three-point shooting is a large chunk of his offensive value, and the Sixers need him to do that at a better level. But I think there's a lot of nuance into scrutinizing the bench performance and um, just how you grade, I, I guess, how, how those guys are playing thus far. I think, obviously, Montrez Harrell, uh, it's been spotty. The minutes have been sporadic, and there have been a few really impactful, high-energy, high-production performances. But it's telling that no one has yet earned that backup center role on a consistent basis. Melton, in my mind, has been good, despite one or two off-shooting nights. As you said, the expectation is not that he's a pure point guard by any means. And then uh, House, I think, you know, has some competition for minutes ahead of him. There's some intriguing decisions to come for Doc Rivers with uh, how he wants to manage things on the wing, whether Matisse Thibel does ultimately prove worthy of an extended run here, even when Harden returns. Uh, so a lot of lingering questions there with the Sixers bench, but no doubt the overall standard has been below what they would have hoped for 14 games. So I'm going to give you your pick because you're the guest. We have PJ Tucker, Daniel House, DeAnthony Melton, and Montrez Harrell. Four new additions. Tell me who you want to start out with first in, the, in our discussion and an assessment of how that is going so far. Uh, let's do PJ Tucker. Okay. So PJ Tucker, uh, I, you know, I did a little bit of research on this other night. I think before I even asked you to come on the pod, um, and I think what I've found thus far is that he's actually 
been a little bit better than the eye test would say, I think is my assessment. Uh, shooting 46% on threes. Um, and all, and you know, it, as long as he's not at the rim, he's been remarkable from two. He's shooting uh, 86% on mid range shots. Obviously, not a huge sample size of that. 12 of 14, though. So, you know, he's been efficient. He's that he has an effective field goal percentage of 69.1. Very good stuff there. Inflated because of limited sample size, but nonetheless, it's very good. Um, I don't think his. I don't think the number of shots he's getting is adequate, but you know, that'll be more of my assessment to come. Um, you know, I, I, I look at his defensive numbers, which is really where he, what he was signed for, you could argue. Um, and I think what I see there is, you know, I look at his block percentage, not great because he's being categorized as a big according to cleaning the glass and he's undersized. So his block percentage is going to fall below what traditional bigs are getting. So, you know, 0.9% there better than it was in Miami last season. Um, You know, I think it's about as good as it's been for his career, relatively speaking. Um, Still for a big, not great. Uh, Steal percentage lower than it was in Miami, but still it's kind of flirting with what it was in Houston. And, you know, um, I think I could call that a little bit down. So maybe he's not, you know, it hasn't been as great as there. Foul percentage, eh, about where it's always been, not not deviating too significantly from his norm. Um, the rebounding numbers uh, look worse because, again, he's being categorized as a big. Traditional bigs are going to have better rebounding numbers than he is because he's only 6'5", but 5% on the defense, on the offensive glass on the shots, um, 11% on defensive rebounds, so when, when, other, when other teams miss shots. It's a roughly all, I think, about where it's always been for him. A couple numbers are, are, are sagging a little bit lower, but relatively speaking, you know, people want to say, oh, he's, you know, he's washed, he's 37, and it hasn't, you know, he's taken a clear step back. I would challenge that premise. I don't know that I believe he's taken a huge or significant step back. His numbers all say that he's right about where he's always been and maybe give a little bit of, of wiggle room on the downside on some of it. But largely speaking, all the numbers are about where they were always were for him. So I'm not too concerned about, you know, a step back there. I think what the eye test is probably telling us is making some mistakes uh, in terms of decision-making. Like if he's overhelping on the strong side, guy's checking a pass to the corner shooter and he's giving up a three because he overhelped or gambled bad decisions. Um you know, maybe he's getting beat off the dribble because the guy is, is 24 and is a point guard and he's 37 and is a wing or a big. That's just inevitably going to happen. But I think, generally speaking, he's been better than maybe we thought he'd be. He, 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 our eyes are telling us he's been a disappointment. I think his impact has always been the type of impact that you don't really feel in blowout losses, but you do feel in close wins. Um, and you know, I think maybe you get a little bit more defensive engagement out of him and those defensive mistakes that like the bad decisions are a little bit fewer and further between. If maybe you look his way a little bit more on offense and set him up for a, a shot here and there, I would like to see him use more as a short roll guy and do, do a little bit of playmaking out of that. I think in the last handful of games, he's been kind of 
locked in the corner, um, spotting up for threes that have not been passed to him. I would like to see him go up and set a pick for somebody and just to see what that, you know, how, how maybe he changes the way that, that teams defend uh, a Tyrese Maxey pick and roll, or maybe, you know, they're throwing a double and they can deliver that pass to him in the middle of the floor. What does that look like? Um, but I think all in all, the numbers are not as bad as I, as I thought they'd be. What would, what would be your assessment of how he's played thus far? Yeah, I, I agree with some of what you said, disagree with, with other aspects. Uh, I, I think you can't overstate it how small the volume is right now. So yeah. I, I don't really care about any of the shooting numbers unless they were concerningly terrible, which they're very much not. I mean, he's taken 24 threes, he's made 11, and all of the threes have been from the corner. So, yep, that checks out. And, yes, the two-point shooting, again, on very low volume has been quite good. But a large chunk of that is the game in Washington that I covered where he was great in the short roll. And him and Harden, I think, threw back to the Houston days with their chemistry. And uh, Tucker was showing off his improved touch in that 8 to 12-foot range with that little push shot. So he's probably due to miss a few more of those. Either way, it's not a big deal. Like he takes the shots that he, everyone knows he's going to take. And I I don't think that's really going to change over the course of a long season. I think I generally agree with your point that I'd like to see him involved in more actions, whether that's in a called play sense or otherwise. I think certainly when the Sixers go small ball, the default is that he's going to be heavily involved. And in those other situations, I do think there are probably ways to incorporate him a bit more. Uh, we know he is a very strong, impactful, eager screen setter. And I think there in all likelihood are opportunities for him to set ball screens for Tyrese Maxey, DeAnthony Melton, et cetera. And I think we saw last year in Miami, he's made growth over his career with ability to be productive and smart on dribble handoffs, on post splits, and just has a little underrated variety. And obviously when he's sharing the court with star players, it makes sense that that's not the first option, but sure, sprinkle that in a little bit more. I personally don't imagine that will correspond to a huge up uptick in shot attempts, yes. but literally just touches, have him touching the ball a little bit more uh, as opposed engaged to in the offense. He, that way he's motivated to be a little bit more active on defense. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't seen defensive activity as an area where he's been abysmal by any means. I do think early in the season, he looked slow against very good players and that wasn't encouraging the, yeah. Pascal Siaka matchup in Toronto, he even lost out in the strength department on one or two times. And you also don't like to see that. Of course, there's the notable context here of he had the arthroscopic left knee procedure. And I think his expectation is as the season wears on, he's going to feel a little more comfortable and a little closer to 100%. And the Sixers can only hope that also means he's better cut out for guarding the star threes and fours of the world that they might ask him to. Uh, But for right now, I I don't see anything 
tremendously important, honestly, from P.J. Tucker's first 14 games. I think his willingness to speak in the locker room is sure significant. Like after they dropped 0-3, we hear from Doc Rivers that he's yelling at guys in the locker room about how wins aren't going to be handed to them. Yeah, uh, And I think you can just feel that when he speaks, people most definitely listen. And uh, he certainly has a, a high level of respect uh, that he's earned over the years. So that's, that's overall where I stand. Could be better, could be worse as far as his first 14 games. But uh, they got him because of the belief that he will give them a greater chance of winning playoff games. And there's still so much we have to learn regarding whether that belief is in fact uh, justified. You know, I think the small ball lineups, it's again just too small of a sample size to draw much from because we're talking about two games where that was featured and the Sixers won against a 7-3 guy in Kristaps Porzingis. And he, had, and he killed them in that game. He, he shot he, – I, I wrote this in a column a couple, couple of days ago, but it was like an obscene field goal percentage that he – like. All he needed to do was just put his hands up in the air and he had a wide open shot over it's, anybody hit his way. Yeah, I mean, just those two games, you know, Perzingis was brilliant offensively and the Sixers lineups with Tucker at the five were also outstanding. I think they have a 121.4 offensive rating thus far with Tucker at center, which is great. The defensive rating is poor. And I'd expect both numbers over time will trend somewhere closer to the middle. And those will be viable in certain situations and those won't be a great idea in others. And of course, a big storyline there also was just, are they deemed preferable, you know, relative to the Paul Reed or Montrez Harrell lineups. And uh, that's something that's still very much an open topic and where Doc Rivers is going to face a lot of scrutiny regardless of what decision he makes. Uh, but P.J. Tucker, I think, thus far has been just about what you could have expected, a little better in some areas, a little worse in others, and still a lot to be determined regarding whether the very significant investment they made in him does indeed help them get over this hump in the second round of the playoffs. Um, P.J. Tucker... With him on the court, there. Oh, one thing I wanted to say before I got into that: um, the foul percentages. Going back to that, I do think there is some sort of linkage to his foul percentages and the uh, and the you know his involvement in an offense. Like his foul percentage, as I said, is a little bit up, about three point six percent. I think the more he has personal fouls, you know, on on his box score, the less likely they are to use him in more, you know, like be use him as an active piece of their offense as opposed to a corner three guy, because he's had a lot of screens this season already. He's been called for moving screens, and so not only is that a turnover, also another foul on him, um, and you don't want one of your theoretical best defenders to be in foul uh, yeah defensive players to be in foul trouble because he picked up two moving screens in the span of four in, of two possessions or what have you so i do wonder how much that increasing cre- increasing foul percentage also linked to the fact that i posited that his offensive activity hasn't been so great i hear where you're coming from i just think there are, are so many 
muddying factors there. Like one game that comes to mind is in Chicago where he picked up several of those moving screens. And then in that situation, it's not just that Tucker's in foul trouble. It's okay. Is this a game where Matisse Thibel is or is not viable offensively? Is this a game where Thibel is also in foul trouble? Is Joel Embiid available? You know, how are small ball lineups faring? Is Tyrese Maxey hot? Like there, there are just so many uh, other factors to consider there besides the number of fouls he has. Um, I think the general point is certainly fair that the overall volume in minutes is going to decrease. And sure, if he has four or five fouls, you're not going to be calling screen and roll with um, Harden and Tucker every single time down. But uh, I think I'm, I'd be curious if that is if that is a long term trend. But for right now, I just think like a, a lot of those uh, numbers with Tucker, like in all likelihood, they're going to even out over time because sure. his style of play and his approach is so consistent. And I do think that usually translates to the numbers being very similar in addition to yeah. the, the eye test for him. I'm not saying that the numbers are in any way at this point indicative of what is going to be the case in March. I'm just, I, I use, you know, these advanced numbers to support or disprove or tell me to look a little bit closer at this or that. It's kind of like, you know, the way that I use them as, you know, salt or pepper on top of the overall meal. But I, I do wonder, you know, if that if the fact like, OK, his foul percentage is up. Maybe he's committing more fouls than usual. Is that why maybe he's not as involved in the offense because they don't want him setting three moving two moving screens in the span of you know a minute. And then suddenly he has, he's at four fouls middle of the third quarter and they don't want that. I don't know. You, you could be right. I'm just kind of wondering maybe that maybe maybe it's the reason why. But anyway, offense they're plus ten they're they're ten points better per 100 possessions with PJ on the floor on offense. Uh, they are 0.2 points per 100 possessions worse defensively with him on the floor. So essentially, like drawing about even defensively, a little worse um, with him on the floor right now defensively. Offense is much better. I don't really know what to make of that. I think as we, as the season goes on, that'll probably come down a little bit. Defense probably go up a little bit is my guess, but right now it it does sort of seem like he's been a, even though he hasn't been used much offensively, he's played with some lineups obviously that have been dynamite. And that is probably because he's on the floor with Joel because they're playing crunch time minutes together or he's playing with Harden because they've they have, they have a good chemistry together, and that's 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 helped some, some things out. But it's better than what I thought it would be at this point. Right. I mean, yeah, I think just the single player net rating kind of stuff. Obviously, you need to examine the context there. And for me, the most notable context is he's played a not insignificant number of minutes as the small ball center. Mm-hmm. Those lineups have been fantastic offensively and poor defensively because of the reasons we discussed with those coming in those Sixers Wizards matchups. So yeah. that, that's the general takeaway for me there. And there are just not going to be many situations in which he's a featured part of the offense, in which there are called plays to get PJ Tucker a shot or an isolation opportunity. Uh, but I think as time wears on, the Sixers will hope. Yeah 
that it's a little more natural to incorporate him on the second side of some of these actions. And also perhaps to draw up a wrinkle or two where uh, he is involved in a double drag action where he's um, doing some interesting stuff as a back screener or what have you. Um, but for now, the Sixers are trying to establish the basics. And he is, we all know, more than happy to stick to his role, to be very limited offensively, and to do his best uh, in terms of just complementing star talent. Who you want to go to next? D'Anthony, Daniel, Montrez. Let's do Montrez. The way you said Montrez got me uh, intrigued. Let's do that. Montrez. So Montrez thus far, it's been an adventure to say the least. Um, I, I think the one thing I look at just for offensively for him is shots at the rim because that's really the, the, the bread and butter of his game. 59% at the rim, not great for a big. Uh, he's been a little bit better of late, um, but all in all has not been tremendous, I would say, especially by his standard. Um, the re- he's re- uh, Rebounding has been atrocious. Um, he's ranked, he's ranked 86% of bigs are better than him at defensive rebounding off of missed shots. Um, 58% of bigs are better than him on rebounding off, off of his own team's misses. And then, as I said, 86% are better on rebounding, uh, defensive miss, uh, rebounding other teams misses. So not a very good rebounding big shots at the rim have been an issue, um, He's getting to the line. He's certainly getting to the line. He gets a lot of and ones, ranks in the 96th percentile for drawing those. But all in all, I think it's mostly been a struggle when he's on the floor. Um, the Sixers are, uh, let's see, da, 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 da. they're they're 10.2 points, but 10.2 points per 100 possessions better offensively. They are uh, 10.8 points better per 100 possessions uh, with him off the court defensively. So it's been not great, to say the least. How would you assess it? I think that's mostly fair, although like the energy factor with him, yeah, you don't want to overstate it, but it is legitimate. There have been three or four games this season where – him being an outstanding energy player has led the Sixers to grab momentum of the game. One of those instances being against his former team in DC. Uh, And then there was a game at Wells Fargo center where he piled up like six free throws in his first three minutes. And yeah, that's going to halt anything positive the other team had going on. And uh, it's going to be really helpful for a second unit that is trying to find its sea legs for for right now. One of the standout Montrez Harrell things thus far for me is just seems every time he goes to the foul line, we hear an enthusiastic supporter of his yelling out, let's go Trez. I don't know if you also hear this during games, but uh, he has a super fan at, at Wells Fargo Center that um, just loves every Montrez Harrell free, free throw trip. So that is that has been fun. Um, just just as you know, someone covering these games adds a little spice to it. But I think the expectation for most of us heading in was 
would be a downgrade defensively, that the Sixers would be a less flexible team with Harrell on the court compared to Paul Reed, compared to P.J. Tucker, and that indeed has been the case. Uh, year after year, he usually is very good offensively in multiple ways, including offensive rebounding, including screening and rolling, finishing at the rim. And yeah, thus far, the main way he's been positive offensively is drawing the fouls and just being a persistent rim runner and screener and roller. But the efficiency, um, you know, through 14 games has been below par. And for him to, I think, justify backup center minutes night after night, he needs to be better there. And that's part of why it's been tough for Doc Rivers to manage this situation. I think he would in all likelihood, have no issue turning to Harrell if this was six-man-of-the-year Montres Harrell. But yep. no question, he's been below that level, and he's been a mixed bag thus far, which leaves him in this awkward position of sometimes he's a DMP and sometimes he's playing an important role. So tough to say how this will play out, and I imagine a lot of it will also depend on the other guys in this mix namely Paul Reed and, and P.J. Tucker, whether they look like more attractive options over the course of the year compared to Harrell. And then also just Harrell himself, of course, whether the touch improves around the rim, whether he can be a little more positive defensively, but uh, thus far, neither of those have been strengths for him. You know, I see him at the rim and I'm like, just go straight up. Just, just, just go straight up. Take, you know, don't bring the ball down. Keep it high, finish high, and nope, it's off his, it's off his leg, or no, it's stripped out of his hands, or oh, he just missed a layup, again. Um, and then there'll be times when he goes to get the defensive rebounds, and you don't even see him coming. He swoops in, grabs it off the defensive glass, and you're off and running, and. You almost wonder, you're like, you're like, oh damn, he must be a good rebounder. And you're like, oh wait, never mind. He's not actually. It's, whew, uh, not great. Uh, I still maintain, I still maintain that at the minimum, it's a fine signing. He's still a boon uh, to scoring points, and he will draw fouls, as we said. He will, if he's so engaged, he will set screens. Um, and you put him in a lineup with Harden. They might give up a lot of points, but they're probably going to score and keep things afloat at least. Um, I would. I, I, we'll, we'll see how it plays out come postseason. But for now, it's hasn't been the greatest return on minimum dollar investment. Which is unfortunate because it looked like a slam dunk signing. Uh, who do you want to go to next? Let's see. Why don't we do uh, Daniel House Jr. next? Okay. What is your assessment of Daniel House? I guess yeah. I guess we touched on it a bit earlier. At the end of the year, okay. What's his what's his three point percentage? That's sometimes a little too simple, and obviously the difficulty of those attempts and where they're coming is also worth consideration, but yeah, that's going to be an important part of this signing. Is he an efficient three-point shooter? Remains to be seen. Hasn't been great thus far. I think early on, there were very noticeable 
struggles that frustrated Doc Rivers just in terms of being in the right spots. There was one game where I noticed Embiid had the ball on an isolation catch and House decided to dart across the baseline and you see Rivers waving him away. <laughs> and I asked, is that about you know understanding of role or is it something else? And he was like, no, that's just something we've gone over 50 times where that side of the floor is supposed to be clear for Joel and that was not executed properly in that particular instance. So it seems like some of that attention to detail and execution of the fundamentals has improved as you'd expect as he gets more comfortable with his teammates and the playbook and what have you. But I think certainly by mid-season, you'd hope that those mistakes are rare. And right now, I, I think it would be fair to say that there are still noticeable issues where you will blow a switch or have a miscommunication defensively where he'll not be in the right spot off the ball. Like there was a play um, recently in Atlanta where he made an entry into Embiid and then Embiid expected him to stay on the left wing Started cutting, you know, they weren't on the same page. It's a turnover. Just eliminate that kind of stuff from your game as a role player, I think, is ideal. But uh, other than that, I think he's been around what I expected in terms of he is significantly more athletic on the wing than the Sixers were last year when Cork Maz was getting minutes in key playoff situations. Uh, there are little flashes of his cutting ability and just the ways his athleticism allows him to make these off script impacts. I'm intrigued to see if that grows. I think we've seen Embiid since his return from this illness, trusting his teammates a little bit more and perhaps that enables house to profit with some cuts into open space and little easy baskets uh, that make Joel Embiid's life easier because then the defense has to respect the threat of his pass. So Again, I think some significant pros, some significant cons, and a lot of it just boils down to, number one, can you trust him to be steady and not make mistakes in high-stakes situations? And then number two, uh, is he hitting those three-point shots, and is he shooting them without any, any hesitation? Of course, House had a unfortunate blip as well, where he was – sideline for a couple games with this illness, but I think seems like he's generally back on track and uh, trying to, again, just establish some of that necessary chemistry with new teammates. I think everything I've seen and heard about him as far as uh, off the court and willingness to be a good teammate has been really positive. Talk, talk with him um, one-on-one on opening night and he was, pretty steadfast about the point like he wants to rebuild his reputation which took a hit you know with the incident in the bubble where he had to leave during a playoff series I think he wants people to see that he has a team first mentality Uh, he's really taken it upon himself to get close to Matisse Thibel to encourage Thibel to shoot when open and he's also developed a nice relationship with Paul Reed around their shared love of music Uh, So some of those intangibles that aren't reflected on the court, they do matter for role players. And I think, again, it's early, but all indications are that 
that general area has been a good one for House, you know, early in his uh, time with the Sixers. They are minus 13.5 points per 100 possessions with them on the court in the early going. The defensive end most, as you, uh, you know, has been the worst of the two sides at minus. Or they've given up 14 more points per 100 possessions with him on the court. I don't think that is all to do with him. That shouldn't be a referendum on him, of course. These individual net ratings more so indicate that as a team, the five-man units that feature him have been getting outscored by 14 points per 100 possessions. Um, I think his role in a defensive setting is to be a chaser. I don't think he's a stopper. I think he makes a two, a few. I think he's a little makes a few too many mistakes to be a stopper. I do think that he is a guy who can seamlessly communicate on switches, can chase guys around screens, can make you miss passes that are long passes because you're trying to avoid him, trying to get away from him, and he can kind of slow you up a little bit. Uh, he does have some springiness to his athleticism, which play, which helps you in a variety of ways. I do want that three-point shooting to, to sort of stabilize a little bit. Has not been good yet. Um, but I, all in all, um, it's about what I expected. I mean, he's a, he's has nice slashes to the rim. I think, especially in transition, I think he's, a, I think he's very good at filling the lanes in transition. He had one play the other night where he like finished a, a reverse layup, got the foul. Um, but you know, the, he's shooting three or he's shooting 33% from three. They, the corner threes have been better, but non corners have been horrific. Um, He's shooting eight for nine at the rim, so not a lot of sample size, but has been you know he's been he's been effective there. Um, this swing, what, what will make what will take him from a questionable rotation player to a full blown lock is if he can get that three point shooting up to about 36 percent. If he can get that up, they're a little bit higher. I think you have something very valuable there at three four million dollars. Agreed. Yeah, I think the defensive role topic is interesting. I understand your point that if the Sixers are trying to decide who should guard Star Wings, Matisse Thibel, Dante Melton are going to be the primary choices. But I do think House has some ability to give you a solid four or five minute stint on an opposing scorer and do a solid job there. Uh, but certainly, and Doc Rivers highlighted this after practice, I think last week, clarity is really important on this team right now. And quite frankly, it's been spotty. So yes, you can just say, Oh, you're Dan Daniel house. You're a three and D player. That's that. But I think it's ideal for him to head into a game knowing all right, my job is to play aggressive defense and force turnovers and thrive in transition or the other way where it's, all right, there's a real chance I play 18 to 20 minutes tonight. And for me to do that effectively, I have to avoid careless fouls and I have to be focused on solidity as a defender. So I think some of those nuances are a work in progress with him and many of the role players on this group, obviously the Sixers defense since Embiid's return from this illness has been great. And I think a 
big part of that is there's more clarity. I think across the board, they understand we're generally going to switch one through four, except out of timeouts. Embiid is our rim protector. He's going to be at the level of the screen on pick and rolls. And our job is to just guard our man well, to try to fight over the top on ball screens, and to communicate as actively as possible. Of course, when Embiid's off the floor, the communication becomes more complicated because then you've got these scram switches and then you've got these difficult closeouts where you're flying out to someone and you're trying to process in real time. Okay, what does the scouting report say about, you know, Anthony Gill compared to, you know, X other role player on the Wizards? Um, But in this scheme that they now seem to have settled on, uh, I think in theory and thus far in practice, guys like Daniel Howe should have easier jobs defensively and have a clearer understanding uh, of what they're supposed to do and how they can help the team win games. So that's the optimistic slant on how, you know, these next, uh, this next stretch of basketball will play out for him. And we'll see whether he can uh, sort of make that happen and uh, do well, you know, in a supporting, supporting role for these guys, obviously, Part of the thinking, too, with adding him is just he knows how to play next to James Harden, hasn't had the opportunity to do that lately. So when Harden gets back, let's see if House can uh, give the Sixers a little more offensive pop, maybe have one or two hot shooting games and gain some confidence that way as well. When I say I don't think he's a stopper, I mean, like, I don't think he's a guy who you – I think if you had your pick of Sixers players to stop a, a, a number one option on a uh, – you know, winner go home possession. I don't think he's the guy that you're choosing for that. I think, you know, I, to be to be fair, I don't know that I think they had any guy, any one guy for that. I think maybe it's the Anthony in some matchups. Maybe it's PJ. Uh, I think they're a team of disruptors rather than a team of shut down individual defenders. I think their individual defender was Ben Simmons, and that's obviously gone now. But um, that's another story. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I think the scheme thing you're talking about is is very true, especially the fact that he's played with James. Their scheme is large. My 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 feeling is their scheme is largely dependent on what is <coughs> what what allows them to um get the most out of James, and doesn't put James in a tough spot because he's obviously a very weak link defensively, and I think the switching is innately going to put him in some bad matchups. So I think they're trying to you know, find ways to mitigate that. Um, but I do think that Daniel is, is a very uh, switch adaptable defender. So I do agree with you there. Um, let's go over to DeAnthony. How would you assess DeAnthony thus far? Yeah, I think I said earlier, he's, he's the best of the new additions yeah. thus far. And I don't, I don't put too much stock again into whatever the sh- exact shooting percentages might be right now. He had a four for 18 game yeah. and that's not going to be the norm. You assume uh, I do think of course the hope is that he's at or close to 40% from three, but the reality is the three point shots without James Harden are going to be more difficult and you expect a lower percentage for him in that regard. Uh, but look, I knew knew heading into the season that he'd be high impact kind of every second he was on the floor, but I think it actually took watching him 
to understand that. But, you know, watching these games in person, it's that first preseason game in Brooklyn, I was, I was blown away, like two minutes into the game, and it feels like there are six or seven extremely high-impact plays that only an elite defender, an elite instinctive basketball player could make. And, and Anthony Melton is that. Uh, I think just throughout the year, in terms of the advanced numbers, you want to be tracking how many turnovers are the Sixers forcing. Uh, they've improved in that department. I think they're around 10th right now after being a middling team last season without Ben Simmons. If they could finish top six or top five in defensive turnover percentage, I think that's massive. And I think, of course, the idea is DMP Milton makes that happen uh, because he's so disruptive uh, just when he's on the court. Turnovers and transition just almost feels inevitable. I think he's been a little more solid physically than I expected as well. Has a wiry build, but I agree. you try to bump him off his spot, and it's rare that he actually do so effectively. I know Bradley Beal tried that a few times, and Melton just doesn't budge. Uh, part of that's the instincts, which are just otherworldly, but uh, I guess part of it's just the strength is, is more than meets the eye. Um, offensively, of course, the big question is just how much is on his plate and when the Sixers need him to do more in terms of initiating offense and facilitating and helping things run smoothly, is he capable? I think the results there have been mixed. I think his passing when James Harden's on the court looks fantastic because there's no pressure to create something out of nothing. It's all right, you know, caught the ball in the short roll or caught the ball on the wing after a swing. And yeah, I'm going to see and make the right play. But when he's sharing the court with Shake Milton or Tyrese Maxey, uh, the decisions are harder and he's having to do more creation from scratch. And that hasn't been as promising and that's also not shocking as well. So, uh, look, he hasn't been a flawless player, and I think a lot of his success will be dependent on him being in lineups that allow him to play to his strengths. But by and large, I think it's been very positive for him so far, and I think uh, it's looking like a strong trade in the very early days of Anthony Melton as a sixer. He's not shooting the ball particularly well, as we said. Um but that'll, I think that'll obviously come as he gets more spot up looks. Um, I do think that his shot, his shooting at the rim is eh, been a, disappointing. I think he's kind of loses some control as as more uh, defenders kind of collapse around him. But I mean, you look at all the individual defensive numbers. He's basically been aside from like one metric, he's been essentially better than 80% of wings on defense this year, um, which, you know, has a home run. Um, I would, given his, given the fact that his playmaking has actually been a lot better than advertised and better than it has been for his career thus far, I would like to see him more in the short role uh, and, you know, next to Harden, next to maybe you run an inverted pick and roll with Joel, Joel getting doubled a lot and let him make plays out of there. Um, I wouldn't even be opposed I would even think it would be actually interesting to see what if they ran 
some plays where he is more of the point guard than Tyrese is um, just to let Tyrese not get so inundated and uh, overloaded with point guard duties, you know, in the short term. Um, I, I, you know, as the more I watch him play, I'm wondering like, is he watching tape of Draymond? Is he watching tape of Bruce Brown uh, on offense? Because, I feel like you get you put him in space in the middle of the floor, and he he's connective tissue to the rest of the offense. And it's really been he's been a, a, an an incredible trade piece. I mean, he's not the shooter that Danny Green was, but obviously over a decade, I think younger, and his defense has been incredible thus far. So it's a home it's been a home run trade. I, I think the defensive, I think the you know the the, the net rating numbers don't tell an accurate story because they're pretty net. They're mostly negative. Um, <laughs> I think if you watch and play, it's been mostly very positive. Um, let's go over to um, the needs that have come to light over, you know, this period without James Harden, I guess maybe it's a little bit hard to say now because it's been 15 days since we last saw James Harden play. Overall, how would you assess, you know, let's say tomorrow the trade deadline, what do you think they need? I think right now I have my, I have two items that I think need to be addressed or at least monitored. What would be your assessment of what needs to be done? Yeah, I think heading into the season, my expectation was that they'd be light on ball handling slash offense running depth. And that has indeed been the case and I think Melton has mitigated to some extent but not to a dramatic one and there are just many instances in these games where it feels like they're in a huge danger zone uh, when their their star guys aren't on the court um, so that would that would be high up there for me um, I'm interested to see how house plays in this stretch leading up to the trade deadline and what level of confidence you might have in him as a playoff level wing. I think of course, overall, you can never have enough shooting around Joel Embiid and James Harden. And there have been some games where teammates missing open shots has been a large reason that the Sixers lost. So yes, a, a wing, if there happens to be one out there, who can provide dependable defense and good three-point shooting. Yeah, sounds sounds good, at least on paper. And then obviously the backup center spot, uh, the Sixers wish they felt better about it right now. There's no way around that. I'm not too sure, you know, how that is going to change up to the trade deadline. I think that has been one of the more unpredictable positions on the team. Uh, you just literally do not know night after night what is going to happen, both in terms of who Doc Rivers gives the first crack and then also how that guy plays. There just hasn't been much reliability at the spot. Though I do think Paul Reed uh, gives you a lot of reasons to want to see more of him. Uh, obviously, you know, the turnover creation aspect of it is massive. You know, he gets uh, – gets a chance in that game against the Knicks after not playing for a while and boom, you know, you look up and he has six steals 
Uh, but that's a rare skill set, um, and I think the Sixers exploring that to the extent that's possible uh, would certainly be advisable to give themselves a better sense of where they are at the backup position, backup center spot heading into the deadline. Obviously, we talked about the small ball pucker at center lineups being an important factor for this team. But yeah, if we're talking about right now, what is weak about the Sixers? Yes, backup center is a weakness as things stand, which is deja vu all over again and just not at all what they were hoping for. So that's overall how I would see it. And I think it's tough to make grand assessments because key players have missed multiple games and that throws everything into flux and that changes roles. But I think you can say with some confidence that they could be quite a lot better in terms of point guard play, second unit guard play. Uh, they in all likelihood could improve in terms of their reliable wings and the backup center spot continues to stand out yet again. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. Um, I do think like the wing part, I'm a little bit unsure of like whether that is a need that needs to be addressed because I think that you have so many right now that like obviously and obviously there would be a consolidation trade if they did this. But I look at this team right now, I think they only have one point guard. Um, I'm not convinced anymore that Shake Milton's an NBA player. Like I, I just I, I don't know what he does positively on a consistent basis on the court. Um, and so, you know, uh, Tyrese is not a point guard to me. Um, I don't know that I trust the Anthony as a dribbler and as someone who can handle the ball consistently be a point guard. I think the only point guard is James Harden. I think their offense has struggled mightily because of it. So I think if there is a back, a backup point guard out there to direct offense, to, make crisp timely passes that would be an item on my list um and i wonder how much that will affect the play of the backup bigs if there is a point guard out there and how much the domino effect you know they're if they're playing with if the backup big is playing well on offense do they play better on defense too because they're energized i don't know um i also look at this team and i don't know that i believe they have enough knockdown shooting and you know i think when you look at the prospect of, you know, shooting, um, you ideally want a three and D guy, but most of the actual and not theoretical three and D players are either going for high prices that you don't have the, 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 the currency for, or they're already locked up on long-term deals with other team that wants them. So I think you can sacrifice a little bit defensively if it means getting in someone that has movement shooting gravity, someone that can, you know, make four of every 10 threes. Um, I don't know that there are any JJ Reddicks out there that are available, but if you can find uh, a, just a knockdown sniper, like a Doug McDermott, let's say, if that's, if, if that's the, if that is that available, I think that's a trade you have to look at, or it's a piece you have to look at because I look at, I look up and down this roster. I just don't trust that there is enough shooting. I hear you. Yeah. And I think it's just frustrating and sticks out like a sore thumb when Embiid and or Harden 
have strong passing games. They trust their teammates and something like Sunday, Sunday night where guys besides Joel Embiid shoot three for 18 from three. That's just not good enough. Um, I do think the overall team percentage will presumably rise when yeah. Harden is back in the mix. We know that many guys shot very well when he was feeding them. George Niang in that pick and pop has continued to look dangerous. And then Tyrese Maxey tends to get more good looks from long distance when Harden sharing the court with him. But no, I think that is an area that's always just going to be so essential on a team with either one of these stars. And now, now you have both of them who just inevitably draw so many double teams and the players around them um, get so many open shots as a result. I don't personally agree with your shake Milton take. I think it's a, I think it's a tad hot. I won't say he started the year well at all. Uh, I think he's been way too inconsistent and he's mixed in maybe two or three good performances with a few clunkers and a few games where the offensive impact is minimal. But to me, he is probably slightly underrated as a defender. I think he's a little more versatile than the average combo guard. I think he can guard some wings. He can guard some point guards. Again, not saying he's a all-world defender, but... I think there are tools there that have allowed him to be good in playoff games and could theoretically, you know, continue to allow him to, to, you know, contribute to a playoff team. But yeah, not an encouraging start to the year for him. And certainly not a reason to say, oh, we're good in terms of our second unit guard depth. Clearly the Sixers are not strong in that department. And I imagine that's not going to change dramatically before the trade deadline. Uh, I, I do think that really needs to be an area that they consider quite closely uh, you know, when the deadline arrives. But my expectation is that all looks better when James Harden is back on the court and guys are in more comfortable roles. Uh, when Shake Milton is not having to try to do something good with the shot clock winding down and a physical guy on him, when it's instead just playing next to Harden for four or five minutes uh, I think he's going to look a lot better in all likelihood. So last couple of minutes here, you and I have had this discussion in person waiting for these games to start. Uh, Doc Rivers. The Sixers win. They want him fired. They lose. They think they're one. The, 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 they being the fans, not the organization, the fans, not the media, the fans. They want him fired. If they lose, they think they're one step closer to him being fired, so they're happy. And I guess in some ways, your take on the whole Doc Rivers thing, I I think you said before the Hawks game on Saturday that if he lost, if they, if they lost that game, um, you were concerned about his job. If well, in the same fashion, I should say, that they lost the first one. Um, if they blew that lead, there was some concern, at least in my head. Um, your take? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure the exact words I use. I think it's more just you look at the precedent of what is generally good grounds for firing a coach early in the season, and it's 
team performing well below expectations and there being numerous games where the buy-in and the effort and the attention to detail are all so much worse than they should be. And the Sixers piled up a few of those, you know, in their first 12 games. Um, I think, yeah, I'm, so there are various hypotheticals we could try to run through of, okay, if they had done. I don't think it's worth doing that because that implies right. that there's speculation. We don't want to do that here. Um, yeah, yeah. I was more just thinking of it um, in terms of what has happened in the past and what, you know, could that theoretically mean for Doc Rivers if X, Y, or Z were to continue trending downhill or going wrong? Uh, obviously, uh, two good wins here, um, led by 101 points from Joel Embiid that have helped them get back on track. And I think we know Daryl Morey very highly values and understands James Harden's impact. Uh, and we'll continue to expect that when Harden returns, the Sixers' overall play will be much improved, especially if they're able to maintain or come close to this current defensive standard. So, yeah, Doc, Doc Rivers, I think, has made some noticeable mistakes in, in how he coaches the team and has generally been called out for that from those who are, are watching closely. Um, I think... The interesting precedent is Daryl Morey firing Kevin McHale. I think it was 12 games into a season. Uh, and that was an interesting decision because that was a team coming off some playoff success, coming off a Western Conference Finals appearance. So I think when Morey believes in his team and his talent, um, he certainly is not just saying, all right, our coach is our coach you know, based on his history. But then there's also the context of he, he really does, I think, have a high level of respect for Doc Rivers in his track record and also a high degree of, I don't know if sympathy is the right word, but takes into account that Joel Embiid missing games, it's hard to win when that happens. You know, James Harden uh, having an unfortunate early season injury, that's also going to have a big impact. So, there's so much, I think, in his mind, and I, I think it's generally justified. You know, I, I think Doc Rivers being weak in certain areas as a coach just doesn't just mean, oh, you fire the team when the team starts slow. Um, I, I think it's always more nuanced than that, and that's ultimately uh, where I sit with it. I, I think, you know, I, I understand the perspective of you shake things up but I also think there's a massive downside of that where that often doesn't work especially well. And some of the clarity that we are seeing the Sixers start to grasp and uh, some of the improving chemistry and improving defense, that, that doesn't happen if, if you fire the coach impulsively after 10 or 12 games. So just, again, me kind of speaking for myself, I like an executive not making rash decisions and, and thinking really closely about all the ways that a decision could work or that it could backfire. Uh, I think if the Sixers had started five and 11 and just game after game, the effort had been unacceptable. That's the kind of situation where I completely would have understand Doc Rivers or any coach being fired, but you know, that's not what's happened here. They've, 
I think, got back on track when they needed to. They're seven and seven, and that's disappointing in some respects, but in some, it, it is understandable, and it's only probably two games worse than you'd expect for a team with the injuries and absences that they've had thus far. So it's a Doc Rivers is a flawed coach. He's also a coach with some significant strengths. And I entered this season thinking the way we judge Doc Rivers is all going to be about, number one, does he coach the regular season such that the Sixers are set up for playoff success? And then when the heat is on in the playoffs, does he actually perform well and make good gut feel calls in those games? And I think, again, we're trending to toward that being how we are going to assess this season. But absolutely, for a while there, in my eyes, it looked shaky just in the sense of starting a year this badly and this below expectations reflects poorly on the head coach. But they're seven and seven now, and I think everyone is breathing a little bit easier. So it was a broad question, hopefully, that that gave you what you were looking for. Um, I think it's clear, like, I, I'm not someone who's inclined to just go off a, a small sample and say, this means firing the coach is good or bad. Um, I generally like to see a little more, and that is where I am at as things stand. I continue to want to see more. Yeah. Um, despite the understanding that yes, there are better coaches in this league right now than Doc Rivers. Uh, there, there also are worse ones at coach, of course, but um, I continue to think that they'll be judged most by what happens in the playoffs. So I think people like I think fans are like, like, come on, just say it. You gotta be fired. It's easy for you to say that when you don't have to face the head coach or his players or members of the staff every other day uh, in most cases and say, yeah, I advocated for this person to lose their job. It's, it's, it's not an easy uh, thing to just say, especially when you're 15 games into a season, there's not a lot of data. There's still new pieces. Um, even though the only significant change to their starting lineup was Danny green and, Matisse Thibel are not there and BJ Tucker is. Um, so, you know, I, I do think the fact that the lineup, starting lineup hasn't been as great as it was last season is a little bit jarring, but all in all, I think you don't fire a, t- a head coach when you have a defense that's top five. Like they've clearly made strides there. Um, I also think that you had to understand the players that you have better. James Harden for all of, the offensive firepower he brings uh, when he misses shots. They are typically long misses sometimes. Uh, He's not a committed – he's not usually a great committed defender. So when he misses these long threes and they are off the rim and then someone's already out in transition, that's a problem when he gets to the rim and gets hit and stops playing because he's trying to get a foul call. You have a slow first step back, and then suddenly you're on four on five already. So I do think it's part of it is Harden's not there. I think part of it is just Joel has t- taken it upon himself to be a better defensive player since he's come back. Um, but, I mean, they're top five in defense right now. Certainly nothing to fire the coach over. Um, 
they've had some inconsistent availabilities. They have had some times where they've looked um, ill prepared to play. They've looked un, they've looked bored on the court, and their offensive structure through thick and thin has not been that impressive. They don't have a, a I don't think that I believe they have a dense playbook. It's kind of the same plays for Joel. And in some ways that was what it was always going to be because he's the reigning scoring champion. But I also think that there could be more intricacies to their actions, more off ball things that I don't think they do enough of. There's a lot of standing and watching. Um, but there needs to be a bigger evaluation period than 15 games. And if the players are responding to what the coach is doing, I don't see a value or a benefit necessarily to firing him midseason. So I think for all of that, and based on the conversations that I've had, I, I think for now he is safe. I think the team kind of operates from the perspective of people are overreacting a little bit um, and that it's, it's, you know, there's, there, there's been some preconceived uh, bias against doc by, by, you know, people in, in the fan base um, and so they're kind of preying on the downfall that kind of clouds the perspective, but I don't think there's any kind of immediate danger for him in the future. Yeah. I mean, to, to what you said, first off, yeah, that's, that's significant. I guess maybe people perhaps don't understand that element as much in terms of the way we ask questions. Like I know for me, I, I have no problem asking questions about, things that aren't positive, but I'm always thinking, what is going to provide insight? How can I frame a question so that it actually uh, gets a useful answer? And just saying something along the lines of like, Paul Reed was great in this game and then you took him out. Like, why the hell did you make that dumb decision? Like, why would I ask it like that when I could actually just ask a more neutral sounding objective journalist question that also is giving going to give ideally you the fans something good, you know, in terms of, yes, of course, in explaining his rationale, which is, is what we all want to know there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't have any problem if I firmly believe based on everything I've seen that he deserved to be fired to say, you know, it's long past time to fire him or something. I, I just don't personally believe that. Um, I think, the whole 15 game sample. It's not that simple because the way they ended last year was bad in terms of just no showing in games five and six. Right. Uh, Those are games where the team just should have played with so much more spark and should have been better at at executing the schemes they wanted, especially if they were going to rather stubbornly stick to many of those core principles and that was a sour way to end the season and then this one started out with higher expectations in an 0-3 start and an historically poor transition defense so I understand the head coach facing some scrutiny in those circumstances Um, but yeah I think firing a coach early in the season is a move that's going to have a huge impact and you better be confident that the replacement is going to be an upgrade that your team is going to be able to regain some stability and some trust in each other. 
Yeah, they're going to be receptive to a new hire too. Yeah. Um, so I think it's easier said than done with calling for someone to be fired and feeling, for me, confident in that stance. And I, and I did not. That said, I think as I alluded to, I, I was of the opinion that if this just kept going in the same direction, game after game, both in terms of record and just in terms of what we were watching, not being to a good enough standard, then that is the kind of situation where coaches get fired and yeah. that decision is understandable. So again, I don't know what that exact record would have been, what would have needed to be especially abysmal in the on-court product, but sure, if the Sixers were 4-13 and 13 or 4-14 and 14 and the body language from the Stars was atrocious game after game and the transition defense just was not improving and they were tuning out the head coach, Yes, that is a Doc Rivers getting fired situation that, in my eyes, would have been fair enough. But that, that situation didn't materialize. And, and you even had, um, after the practice Wednesday, George Yang telling us, you know, Doc threatened to sit guys at a certain point with the transition defense. Uh, in Toronto, he said, you know, if, if this doesn't improve and you're not getting back on defense, I might take you out of the game. And the fact that it has at least gotten to a point where the Sixers aren't bottom five there anymore, I does I do think that indicates that there's some listening to the head coach and there's some yeah. caring about what he has to say. So, you know, right. I, I just I just think any early season decision, there's a huge risk that it's wrong because you haven't had a lot of evidence to discover important things about your team both just interpersonally with the players, how they are responding to adversity, how they're responding to the coach. Um, and then also just like about your roster and about what everyone looks like when they're playing healthy basketball together. Um, so I, I don't want to take the stance of you always need to just sit back and wait for a full season and then you evaluate. But I do think perhaps a little more sitting back and evaluating has generally been where I've stood in comparison to the average Sixers fan that, that just does not like Doc Rivers as a coach. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my tone there was more so asserting, like, I'm not going to sit here and call for an individual to be fired just because fans want me to or because, you know, it's not going to be some half, you know, side of the mouth, it's just, hot takery that, that that you know that's not what we're in this business to do i mean i i think right now my my biggest concern is just the lack of structure in the offense and if that's my biggest concern at, at a time when there's no james harden i don't think there's a lot of if you if you zoom out you know i don't think there's a lot of reason and justification for firing a guy who doesn't have a starting point guard. But I do think that to be fair, we are headed to a point where if this is if 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 the the road ends where it's always ended, three years of the same product is not gonna it, it's it's not going to end well for him. Yeah, I think he understands that as well. Uh they need to do better this playoffs. Uh just Losing in the second round would not be acceptable. 
and there's a lot of improvement that needs to be made for them to be an Eastern Conference Finals or better team. Um, but for me, it's going to be about the playoffs for him, and he does need to take them there in such a way that they've already experimented with schemes that are going to be useful against different types of opponents and they've established a little more creativity in how they play when Harden and or Embiid are off the court but that is a ways down the line and I think the chances of him reaching that point still as the Sixers head coach right now look quite good and right now I, I don't have any problem with the idea of him coaching the Sixers in a yeah. playoff in the playoffs being fair enough. Um, yeah. I totally understand like, if you're a Sixers fan thinking, man, you know, I'd love to have Kylo coaching our team in the playoffs as opposed to Doc Rivers mm-hmm. or, you know, believing that Eric Spolstra would be a superior coach mm-hmm. in a second round series than Doc Rivers. But um, the situation right now is Rivers is the team's head coach and has done some good and some bad in that position. And obviously this postseason is a massively important one for him and his players. Noah, where can everybody find you? Uh, so you can read my work at uh, NBCSportsPhiladelphia.com. Uh, I'm also on the uh, Sixers Talk podcast with uh, Danny Pommel's. And uh, my, my Twitter is uh, just at Noah Levick. Um, hopefully I get an occasional retweet from um, the, the guy I've joined here tonight. He's uh, always always plugged in on the Twitter streets. And Well, um, after tonight, might, there might not be any more Twitter after tonight. We'll see. <laughs> has there been something extremely... Uh, oh, Elon's up, Elon's up to something new. So All right. Well, we'll, we'll see. Twitter or otherwise, um, you know, there are places that uh, you can find me if you are so inclined. And um, yeah, but that's, uh, that is the gist of my presence on, on the interwebs. Noah Levick, you do a great job covering the Sixers for NBC Sports Philadelphia. I will see you tomorrow night. The Sixers host the Bucks. Um, what's your early take on that game? Um, like... So, so the injury report is interesting for Milwaukee. We've got Drew Holiday as uh, questionable, uh, Grayson Allen probable. I think if Holiday plays, I lean toward Bucks having a good chance to win. I think the Sixers layoff might be an issue, and just fluid offense that does not involve Joel Embiid might be a recurring problem. But Look, Brooke Lopez just hit seven threes in a game. I don't expect that to happen again. I, I expect him and Milwaukee in general to perhaps be a bit colder from long range, and I think it goes down to the wire for that reason. I think the Sixers have a decent chance to win it, but um, I think right now if I had to make a prediction, I, I think that the Bucks yet again, prevent the Sixers from moving over 500. I have a feeling the Sixers win tomorrow night. Okay. That's just my feeling. And in honor, in honor of Kai Carlin, Mamuka, uh, Sandra Mamukashvili will have 55 points, uh, 16, or uh, I guess in honor of Sixers Adam, uh, 55 points, 16 rebounds, 17 assists. The, the, 
one of the greatest triple doubles of all time. So I look forward to it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Noah Levick, I will see you. I'll see you soon, my friend. Sounds good. Thank you. Be stepping back and stroking.